Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What is going on today? Well, today is another good day in the world of the What Difference Does It Make podcast, don't you think? Oh, well, yes. Give me the 411. What's, uh, what's happening? There's a reason I said 411. The reason you're asking me about the 411 is because our guest today is Kurt Larson, who is the singer from the band Information Society. Yay! <laughs> Did you love it? You the- want to know what I'm thinking? What are you thinking? Tell me what's on your mind. Oh, how about that? Your energy. Yes, this is a song that made it up to number three way back in 1980. I don't even know. 1988. Yes. 1988. He tells us the story about why the album was not released in 1987 as it should have been. Yeah, we get some good stories. If you've just discovered What Difference Does It Make, I highly suggest you subscribe to our podcast. Just smash that button and love us forever. You will be rewarded every Friday with a new episode. You don't have to smash the button. You could just tap it if you'd like. It'll have the same effect, but we, we would love it either way. Let's get into it with Kurt Larson. Of Information Society on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Let him Shall in. We? There. Hi. Hi. Well, thank you for doing this. Indeed. Do people generally access podcasts directly now? Like, I'm just a person and I'm aware of a podcast, so I'm going to go directly to it and get it. Or do the majority of people rely on some kind of curation service? A little of both, actually. We always want people to subscribe to our podcast, but it's usually the guests. We're a part of Pantheon Podcasts. It's a music network. So a lot of people find us, can find us that way. Social sometimes, media. We, yeah, we social media. So a lot of times people will like want to hear the guest or know that it's about 80s and we just feature something that they like. They'll click on it just as a one-off and then subscribe. I never really did podcasts much. So I've been curious about how people consume them because it occurred to me that probably people are using curation services by now. Like everything, it's kind of word of mouth. It's kind of like how your music got out. I'm sure it was first word of mouth and then... Uh, no, our, our music got out primarily through illegal payments to third parties to illegally influence radio stations. Nice job. It worked. <laughs> yeah. Congratu- it worked. Congratulations. Two top 10 hits. Right in there. <laughs> Did you ever read Hitmen? Oh, yes. Oh. <laughs> it, was, it was disturbing how, you know, not unusual or weird the whole book felt to me. It was like, oh, yeah, that seems normal thank god (laughs) that came out actually yeah like right at the time that you guys were hitting he was definitely not making any of that up i i think everything he said in the book was accurate the question that he didn't try to answer which which was smart is you know what percentage of the entire music business at the time was like that and i don't know and he didn't know and we'll never know but it was certainly enough that none of that stuff he was talking about seemed weird to anyone you know so when you get, uh, you know, there's always the deductibles of, uh, you know, like recouping from, from labels where there are always different things. So like, why is this number so large? What, uh, yeah, it's, why, it's, called independent, it's called independent promotion. Did they call, but they didn't call it that, it. did they? Or they call it something yeah. else? Yeah. No, it's called independent promotion. It wasn't right. a secret. You'd hire an independent promoter or a large label might have some on the payroll. And their job would be vaguely described as doing things, usually regionally or locally, um, to generally promote the music, not only to radio stations, but other entities as well. And that absolutely for some people and with some labels and some bands did include direct payments to programmers at radio stations. Well, let's go back to you. You had to do a lot of kissing the ring for all these PDs at at radio stations. Did you enjoy that part of uh, visiting radio stations? And did you have to do that? I did. And no, I didn't enjoy it. Uh, One of the conversations that I had 
ongoing in the entire time during which we were trying to rely on the band to be our actual career, like our paying the rent career. It was fed back to me by my bandmates and by our management that I sucked at all that stuff. And my general response was, you're right. And I've only ever warranted that I'm any good at two things, making music in the studio and performing on stage. Literally everything else, not only do I not claim to be any good at it, I'm probably way below average. It makes me really uncomfortable. I was terrible about it, uh, at it. People generally talked about how much we sucked at it, even though it was really me, because Paul and Jim were fine. They could go meet people and smile and make a good impression all day long. So we pretty quickly realized that the thing to do was to send Paul and Jim to, you know, to be friendly and do all that stuff and leave me the crap out of it. <laughs> but that's hard to do because frequently people say, no, we want the lead singer here. And then they say, oh, no, you don't trust us. You don't want him. <laughs> You would think when the, the label gets that about you, they can kind of give you another role. No, they can kind of drop us from the label. <laughs> or that. <laughs> I mean, they, usually a band exists in one of two states. Either it's making enough money for the label that the label really doesn't care. You know, fine. So they upset people or got arrested or whatever. They're making us millions of dollars, whatever. Or they're not, in which case, I don't care how good or wonderful you are, we don't want you on our label. There's a very, very, very narrow range, right, in the middle there where your behavior is going to seriously influence what the label does or doesn't do with you. I mean, people might complain, like a local promoter might say, I brought the band to the radio station and the lead singer was rude. Um, but does that get us dropped from the label? No. So now you're, you have your own label. You are distributing your music now yourselves? Oh. No, it's really complicated, and I don't understand it. Kirk can do two things. <laughs> yeah, I can, right. <laughs> I can perform on stage. Now, it's, it's a whole different world now, as you know. But nothing that we learned in the 80s and 90s about how the music business works uh, applies now. So I just have to ask our manager, like, what the hell is this? How does this work? Where did our songs go? Who pays whom? And it's really complicated for us because, like, 10 years ago, it was pretty simple. We put out our albums just ourselves. It was just an information society album put out by information society. And we made a small deal with a small distributor and there's a really sim simple business arrangement. And there wasn't really anything down the way to advertising or promotion. And there was no big deal. Then interestingly, Tommy boy kind of came back into the picture for us in recent years. Uh, and Tommy boy recently came back into Warner brothers picture again. And honestly, now I don't understand how our albums are marketed or promoted. <laughs> I have no idea. Well, this is one of them. <laughs> by you're, what, you're, you're doing, by you're what you're doing right now. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but like, you know, who buys advertising? Who decides whether we're going to get any advertising? Who takes a cut of what? Uh, whether we're paying money to any entity like DistroKid or not? I don't know any of these things. Because, you know, none of us care anymore, right? None of us depend on this to make money. I mean, which is good because we don't. And it's no longer possible to have a career by selling recordings of your music. That's not how the music business works anymore. Really, the only way to make money is um, branding and live performances. And all of us have, have real jobs now, you know, that pay a minimum of 10 times what we could ever possibly make on our, from our band. So I have zero incentive to care about anything anymore other than recording music in the studio and performing on stage. Okay. <laughs> I mean, Which is I, I'm talking to you guys because I knew it would be uh, easy and comfortable and fun and there's no reason not to, you know. Okay. But if it was like we were touring and I had to come to a radio station and oh, that's a good one. 
<laughs> I had to come to a radio station and there was going to be like 13 people there and they all want to meet me in person and let, you know, like, like in the old days, um, that would probably still make me really uncomfortable. Not as much as before when I was younger, because I'm just older and it's gotten easier for me to roll with things, but still you're getting a better side of me doing this than you would if I had met you in person at a radio station, for example. And the other guys in the band, are they also doing promotion right now? Are they talking to people? Are they out there? Are they it just... No, they're totally shirking, making me do all of it. <laughs> no, that's not true. Um, Paul's doing some. I don't know if Jim's doing any or not. I don't think Zeke's doing any. We have an official fourth member now, you know. Oh, we saw. Yeah. How did, how did that come to be? Well, it was, uh, it was a real windfall for us. Um, we were just trundling along doing our thing. And uh, this guy in Arizona named Zeke Pabluda reached out to Paul and he said, Hey, I like your guys band. I do video um, here. Look at this thing that I made. And Paul said, yeah, that's really cool. And they kept talking and, and Zeke just took it upon himself to make a whole video background accompaniment for an entire live show that we were doing in Philadelphia, like a whole 15 song show. He said, Oh sure. Here's 80 minutes of video that I made. Go ahead and play it. Um, you know, tuned to each song and everything. He just did that on his own volition, you know? And we thought, God, damn, that's cool. And that relationship continued. And uh, finally, we just said, why don't you come on stage with us and run live video? So he's been doing that with us for a long time now. And a few years ago, we said, we, you know, we got to stop pretending that Zeke's just, you know, a temporary employer or something. We we couldn't do our stage show without him anymore. That's so cool. So he, he won himself a spot in the band. <laughs> what, is yeah, his, what is his title? Does, what do you video guy? We, okay. we didn't understand in the mid-O's that it was coming on the time when you just couldn't have a live show without a video presentation. We, we probably wouldn't have seen that coming and Zeke did. Uh, so thank God for him, you know, or we would be doing these live shows and there's no video. And I was going to, don't you have any video? No, we, we're too old and tired. <laughs> but yeah, you just uh, have to look at us. <laughs> 10 years younger than us or something like that. And had more energy than we did. Well, you, but you did understand the visual presence. Those are early videos are are very colorful and vibrant. And yeah. a lot of a lot a lot of energy. Did, yes, but was it pure? Yeah. Well, <laughs> ask Leonard Nimoy. I don't know. I suspect this energy of being impure. Yeah, we, I mean, we understood the value in a video and we liked it and all, but what we didn't know is that um, it would become actually necessary. We had always seen video as a nice extra. Yeah. Um, but I mean. Anyone hearing this should feel free to disagree with me. And maybe I'm wrong, but I got the impression some time ago that in the modern era, you kind of have to have a video presentation. I'm sure there are certain genres of music where it's not as important. You know, if we were doing acoustic sets of different kinds of music, maybe it wouldn't, maybe video is not appropriate there or something. But the kind of music we do, oh my God, you got to have it.
early videos, so pre this time, did you, how much input did you guys have in the visuals of the band? Uh, well, I assume by early, you mean um, the ones on our Warner Brothers albums, not the, the weird experimental college kid shit we did before that. Yes, the ones that we saw, exactly. Yeah. Quite a bit. I mean, the way it worked for the first album is, um, I don't know who, but somebody more connected than, than I was uh, hooked us up with, I think it was our manager. See, our manager worked at MTV and he, I think he connected us to Mark Pellington, uh, who is a, uh, at the time a videographer and now also a filmmaker. And I think Mark's relationship with MTV was, uh, was quite broad at the time as well. And Mark brought us the whole visual concept of, of the video. He's the one who said, Hey, here's what I see doing. And we kind of just said, uh, you know, we were what 25. <laughs> we just said, okay, sir, that looks good. Thank you. And um, did the thing. Right. I'm not saying we had no input, but the whole look and feel and idea of those early videos didn't start with us. We yeah. just kind of worked with Mark's vision on that. Then by the second and third albums, we were more involved, uh, as you can tell, because they weren't as good. <laughs> well, I was about to say, cut to 25 years later, and you've got this new, I just saw this video for Come and Get It. You, you've oh, got, the one where we're dancing? Uh, yeah, you're on roller skates, <laughs> I, mean, I believe. I made that one. I made that myself <laughs> at, home, at home on my computer using Vegas. Yeah. That was just this idea I had, like, wouldn't it be fun to, to do this? And I said, okay, I need everybody to send me video of themselves dancing and then I'll just splice it together over this song. And then, yeah, and yes, that's actually me roller skating. And yes, I am that good. So this has been a couple of years. Cause I've, I've seen a, a number of videos mm. that are going to be on this album that like there was one, um, I think Bennington came out in 2019. Right. Yeah. Well, now Zeke makes all of them. The one that I made was a one-off deal. I don't normally make videos for the band. That was just this wacky idea I had that I thought would be fun. Zeke helped me with it. But um, other than that one, it's all Zeke. Like the most involvement I've had in the videos, uh, other than the come and get it one, was Zeke would call me up and say, so what do you think about this song? We got any ideas for what kind of video we should make? And maybe I do, maybe I don't. But then, you know, he takes it from there. It's his thing. like piecemeal it took like uh, you started in 2015 and started like once in a while get the guys together and record something or send it back and forth how did this album come together well we've been using the same method to make songs now since you know probably the mid to late o's which is when paul feels like it and has an inspiration or has any spare time he'll record some tracks at his studio he'll get them up to a sort of a pre-production state and then He'll send it to me and either he does or doesn't already have ideas for lyrics and melody. To the extent that he doesn't, I provide that. And then I come in and sing the song. When we get to a sort of critical mass and they want to put out an album, they meaning Paul and, and our manager, then 
we go through the effort of, of doing it. For a while, we tried only releasing singles because I'm way more into the sort of modern internet content than, than they are. And I tried to convince them that the name of the game now is, is no longer, you know, selling albums to make money. That's dead. The name of the game now is to maintain attention. To benefit us the most, we need to maintain a sense that we're an ongoing concern that is still doing stuff regularly so that people still have an incentive to pay attention and that that would behoove us a lot more than putting out an album every three to five years in between which no one would think about us at all. So we released a couple singles on that four or five months schedule, but then, you know, the, the lure of putting out an album, man, just got to be too much. And now we're putting out another album. Having some fun with information society singer, Kurt Larson. We're going to take a break and be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Kurt Larson of Information Society. You mentioned that uh, the Paul Rob, I get, is it his responsibility to get, get the gang back together again? And, uh, you know, it's like herding cats or like the, the bat signal is up and then you're like, oh my God, I got to get, I got to get into action. Or, uh, well, we stay in touch. Uh, before the pandemic, the, the most regular ongoing activity was going out and playing shows. Yeah. So that's kind of what keeps us in sync with each other. Historically, it was uh, Paul who wanted to start up doing the band again uh, in like 2004. Yeah, if, if he hadn't sort of wanted to do that and reached out and tried to convince us to do it, it, it wouldn't have happened. Are you guys all, are you in Minneapolis? I lived in Minneapolis for a while recently, but he moved out to New Hampshire. I've been in San Francisco since 93. And Jim is a professor of soil science at Oregon State University in Corvallis. Ah, go Beavers. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you touched, you're in San Francisco because 
you've got a, a whole new career. Yeah, not even a new career. A career. <laughs> yeah, I it's mean, a new career because in this career it has paychecks. Yeah. What do you call yourself? It's a, a audio engineer for video games, or what? What is your title? Yeah, the, the term, the terminology. You have to be really careful because the term audio engineer has two completely different meanings inside and outside the games industry or software development in general. In software development, which is where I'm working, an audio engineer would be a computer programmer who specializes in audio things. But outside software production, an audio engineer is the person who works at a recording studio and is the one who understands all the machines, knows how to make it all work, and knows how to call up any kind of thing you need to happen at any time and keeps that all running so that the producer doesn't spend the whole day like trying to understand why the EQ isn't properly connected to the mixer or something like that. So for me, what I do is I tend to call myself just generally an audio specialist in software development in the games industry. The titles are, are always confused because companies don't know what to call us. You know, for a while at one company, I called myself, my, my official title was sound guy. Um, we all had wacky titles in the early O's and then we all learned what a terrible idea that was because then later when we were trying to get other jobs at other companies and those companies wanted to verify our employment, (laughs) right? We put in our resume, you know, you either say what your actual title would have been like, you know, grand Puba of awesome because people had titles like that, you know, and and then the company would, but you wouldn't want to put that on your resume because, so you, you'd, You'd write in the title that you probably normally would have had, but then when they try to go verify that, they can't because it wasn't recorded as such. And oh my God. (laughs) So currently I think my title is senior sound designer, um, but I've also been, you know, audio director, uh, audio lead and sound guy. And how did you fall into being a sound guy? How'd this happen? Uh, the, The long answer? Or the just the one-liner. We are a podcast that can go on forever and ever, and then if you get boring, right. I'll just cut you off. So you know, let's so give, so, give a, we'll give, take a, a loaded with info response. Give us Hold an elevator. On. We're on an elevator. <laughs> give us the elevator pitch. No, no elevator pitches. Yeah. So in '93, Paul said that he didn't want to do the band anymore. Um, he had just gotten married and. Uh, his wife had just gotten pregnant and we just came off a, a long, 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 long Brazilian tour, which um, in, in some ways didn't go well at all financially. And he decided, you know, this is a good time to just drop it. Oh, we also, we got dropped from our label that year and he felt that all the signs were pointing to it's time to stop. So he did. And he didn't do anything with the band for another 11 years. I kept going, but I decided I was going to move to San Francisco because I also saw the writing on the wall and realized it might become really difficult to pay for my life from this. And I had already had some interest in getting into doing um, music and sound for video games just because that was my thing. So I moved out here for that and other reasons. I love San Francisco. And I just sort of looked around for ways to make contacts in the games industry. It was hard for me because I had literally never had a real job before at all. Right. And I was 30 years old, you know, other than part-time minimum wage stuff in college, I had never like gone out and gotten a proper job. I didn't know how to do it at all. And I had no resume and my resume said, you know, working in a pizza joint, washing dishes, rock star. that, that, That resume doesn't get you any jobs. So I just, happened to notice one day that some guy was teaching some class with a really dumb title, you know, like music and sound for the new media or something. And I kind of rolled my eyes and said, Oh, what a bunch of crap. And then I noticed that it was being taught by a guy named David Havalosa, 
who was at that time the head of music and sound at Sega. And I thought, this class is only $300. I would pay more than that just to have lunch with this guy. So I took his class and by total luck, and you will hear in anyone's success story, there at least there's this one point of articulation at which it was complete luck. In, in our career, we had at least five of those. By total luck, he had just finished producing an album for Sega that consisted of 10 songs by well-known acts like Information Society who had used the Plus G channel on CDs. Are you familiar with that? Uh, yeah. So I have to say no. There's an extra information channel in the CD format. Oh, right. It was, I, I do, okay. Yeah. 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 So explain yeah. that. Okay. So explain in. that. I didn't know what it was called. That, it was that. put into the, uh, into the format by the Japanese because they felt that it would um, be really good to have a way to build in karaoke lyrics to albums. I didn't quite understand that because, I mean, the vocals are already on those albums, but whatever. And I don't know what they called it there, but here it was called plus G, meaning plus graphics. And you didn't have to put text on it. You could put like images on too. So Warner Brothers was trying to like figure out a way to use this new medium. And they said, oh, Information Society would be perfect for this because, you know, they're all techie and stuff. So we put some plus G on our first album. If you uh, play it in a player that has a plus G output and plug it into a TV, you will see a bunch of pictures and stuff. Well, Sega had just released the Sega CD, meaning it was a regular old Sega Genesis, but it had a CD drive. And they wanted to promote the plus G capabilities of it. So they made, they, they themselves produced a music album consisting of a bunch of songs, two of ours, at least one by Devo, one by the Talking Heads, a couple other bands who had used plus G on their albums. So they were promoting the Sega Genesis, the, the Sega Genesis CD device as a music playing device that could give you plus G capability. And he had just gotten done putting that together. So when he went around the room asking like, what's our background in music and sound? And I, and I told him, he was like, oh, wow. I just put two of your songs on an album that I was producing for the for Sega. Wow, that's so cool. So he kind of took me under his wing and he introduced me to a couple of people who he knew who were involved in doing game music in the Bay Area. And from them, I got to do a few gigs and it all took off from there. Timing was right for me at the time. Uh, it was it was a unique point in history in which they were starting to want to up their music game in, in video games. Uh, they wanted to make it better. And so they were looking for people with some kind of proven cred in, in music. And I had that. But they were also looking for people who were willing and able to work with the unbelievably finicky, techy, fiddly, bizarre crap that you had to do to actually make the music for these games because it was nothing like going into a recording studio and most music artists of any stature would look at it and say i'm not doing that it was bizarre I, they gave me a a special jacked up sega genesis device and then this circuit board just a bare circuit board and you had to jam it in the top of the, of the genesis instead of the cartridge 
And then the circuit board had this giant ass Centronics connector on it for, for SCSI. And on the other end, you had to connect it to your parallel port of your MIDI interface on your PC. And then you had to use this bizarre software, which ran on DOS, just like Windows did at the time, but it was a graphic user interface. It was like a, comp- a competitor for Windows called Gems. No, wait, it was called Diamond. I don't know what the operating system was called, but the, the music software was called Gems, which stood for Genesis Environment for Music and Sound. And luckily, one of the guys who, who got me into doing music for it was the brother of the person who made the program. So I had access to updates. And it was hard to use, and it was complicated, and it was bizarre, and it didn't work very well. And it just wasn't the way most musicians thought, but I did. <laughs> and I had been doing crap like that for 13 years by that time. You know, back in the early, early days, we were doing junk like writing to Moog, the synthesizer company, and asking for a circuit diagram so that we can make our own circuit to convert the signal from a Roland TR-808 drum machine to their new Moog source keyboard that had a sequencer in it so we could sync them up, you know, because you couldn't do that otherwise. That was normal for us. Well, there were very few people who could walk in and say, I have music cred, and also say, and I'm willing and able to deal with all this junk. And I was one of them. And that's kind of how I got rolling on that. It was good timing, for sure. That's a great story. Yeah, but it's like the music business. It's connection. You had you had a connection that uh, could kind of introduce you to uh, to, to where you wanted to go. Yeah, I definitely benefited benefited a bit from the reputation of the band. That's spectacular. The music that you you have created is what are you most proud of? Soul Reaver. Um, there's stuff all over YouTube. All the music's on YouTube, including delightfully a bunch of covers of the theme song that I did for Soul Reaver, which was interestingly directly licensed off my 1997 album, Don't Be Afraid. So there's an Insock album that has a song on it called Ozar Midrashim, and that went right into Soul Reaver as the theme song. And I did all the other incidental music too. And then people started making covers of the Soul Reaver theme song, not realizing it was from an Information Society album, and that was really fun. I got more personal artistic creative gratification out of doing the music for that game than most of whatever else I've ever done with the band, for sure. Wow. Saying a lot, because uh, you've done a lot with the band. Indeed. The, it's uh, been 39 the... years. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking it's still March of 2020. <laughs> what about, how do you feel about ABBA? Are you still, uh, still a fan of that? Do you like that cover that I you guys was. did? Not a fan. Not a fan. How did that kind of, had, how... Did that come to be? How'd you end up doing a cover of that song? Monica Lynch worked for Tommy Boy, and her big project was um, the the gay club scene. RuPaul was Monica Lynch's creation. She wanted to bring us into her area of expertise. She thought that the best way to do that would be to have us do a, a, an ABBA cover. I didn't want to do it. So the band I have like- anything against ABBA. I mean, you can't fail to respect a band that's accomplished all they've accomplished. I thought it was stupid because I didn't think it made sense for us to do an ABBA cover, you know, it, it didn't, didn't seem genuine to me. So I take it you won't be performing that on stage. Well, we sometimes do, but I'd rather not. So what do you do then? I mean, how do you, if, if you don't believe in a song, what is the, is it, is it a band dynamic where you, 
you go over the set list or it's like, we have to play this song. Obviously you have to play pure energy, but something like that ABBA cover is that like, can you say, I, I, I don't want to do it tonight or, you know, work over this for the set list. Well, we've had those kinds of arguments before, if that's what you mean. Yeah. So, I mean, but you say you still sing that to this day, like the, do this cover. I try not to, <laughs> you know, we, we don't usually do lay all your love on me. Um, none of us particularly like doing it on stage. We only do it if somebody's made a big stink about it, which doesn't happen very often. Or the last time we went to Brazil, our gimmick was that we were playing the entire first album as it was released, like all of the songs in order. So we had to do it then. last time i did it that was like september of 2019 are you going to be hitting the road do you, will you get some time off to from work to uh, to go work the road yeah how's that work yeah probably i mean i can take time off if i need to uh, you know the rest of the world is is not in any way over the pandemic and our biggest market is brazil and they are in deep yeah. trouble with yeah. the pandemic so there are no plans Still in Brazil. Why Why do you think that is in Brazil? <laughs> I'm asking why your music is so big. Specifically, one of the things that helped get us going there was that uh, some soap opera randomly pulled one of our songs yeah. to, to play in, in the show. And uh, that was another one of those things you can't predict or control. That's such a great, that has to be a good feeling when people, because I mean, we, we know it as fans, if you hear something, then you research it and then you get to, you know, mm-hmm. you get greater exposure to it. Yeah. To have fans come to it organically like that must be. Like uh, how many fans did um, Sigur Ross get from having that song in the Vikings series, you know? Yeah. Yeah. All it takes, it's just a needle drop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so can we, I know this is the, the question you probably hate being asked, but the pure energy, whose idea was it to incorporate the Star Trek? Was that your thing? Both Paul and I contributed to that. I um, was I was the one who was spending hours and hours with a mono eighth-inch cable plugged into an old television set and connected to a cassette tape recorder and recording entire episodes of Star Trek when they aired. You know, I had to wait for them to come on. Remember that? Like, oh, it's not on right now. We have to wait. <laughs> and if it airs um, at midnight. <laughs> yeah, right. So I'd record episodes of Star Trek, and then I'd take the cassette tapes, and I'd play the cassette tape into the sampler and save those off. And I, I was recording a lot of those, and I just kept thinking, we can use these in songs. And so we started putting some of those things in some of the songs. And when it, when we were in the studio making 
the first album, we had that in mind and we pulled them out whenever we thought they might be useful. Who specifically wanted to put that sample and that point in that song? I don't remember. Probably Paul. Did you have to get Leonard Nimoy's permission or the uh, the, no. the television studio's permission or? Yeah, it, or... it would. It, we had to get the permission of Paramount yeah. and, and we had to pay them. Yes, of course. That's a whole story in and of itself. We made that album in 87. It didn't come out till 88, which is the whole point of the story, but we made it in 87. It was the very, very, very early period in the whole, you know, sampling controversy and nobody really knew what the law was going to end up being or what people were going to decide. Everyone was still kind of looking at each other going, well, sampling, what should we do about this? What do we think? I don't know. How do you feel about it? Ah." So there was a lot of fear. Nobody wanted to get sued. So we came to Warner Brothers with this finished album, you know, that they had already given us our own money in advance to pay for recording and it was done. And they're saying, so what are all these recordings of people talking coming from? And we said, it's from Star Trek. And they said, I see. So you're, oh boy. (laughs) And then they just, they kind of went, I'll have to check with so-and-so in this other department about that. Let me get back to you in six weeks. And <laughs> and then, well, I don't know. I have to ask my boss and seven weeks later. And then, eh, I don't know, maybe we could like reach out to somebody at Paramount because they own the Star Trek episodes and see what they think. You know, what's Paramount's motivation to return a call from Warner Brothers about some small little deal with, you know, it wasn't worth anyone's time. So we just languished and we had gone into a, sh- a live performance blackout uh, in advance of releasing the album because we wanted to be fresh and ready to go out and tour to promote the album because that's what you used to do back then so we weren't playing any shows and the album didn't come out we had no income coming in and, and it was terrible mm-hmm. and our manager kept like calling up warner brothers and screaming at them saying we gotta do this but nobody at warner brothers could make paramount do anything and it wasn't that they said no it's that nobody wanted to take time out of their day to read a one paragraph piece of paper. You know, <laughs> there's also a bit of the, um, of the incentive problem. If, if somebody asks you if something's okay, if you say no, you're safe. And then the loss, the potential loss is, is either zero or something you can't really figure out. So who cares? But if you say yes, something bad might happen and it'll be your fault. So that's the situation we were up against. So act two. Our A&R guy, Kevin Laffey, by sheer luck and coincidence, happened to be friends with a guy who at the time was working as a lawyer in the music industry, whose name was Adam Nimoy. And yes, it was Leonard's son. Now, at the time, Adam and Leonard's relationship wasn't great, but they weren't not speaking or something. So Kevin asked Adam if Adam could do anything. Like, could he maybe get his dad to talk to somebody at Paramount? And so Adam went to Leonard. And he did like Leonard Nimoy (laughs) went to Paramount and said, can you like get something moving on this, uh, on this uh, band? What's it called? The uh, information league, I think. Cause uh, my son Adam called and said, they trying to get a project moving. Can can you get somebody to look into that please? And then uh, everything started turning and we were fine. Warner brothers uh, advance took some of our money and gave it to Paramount. Meaning we then, you know, they got taken out of whatever they ever would pay us and it all worked out. And we heard about this and we were thrilled, you know, that Leonard Nimoy himself, you know, had, had become the, the, um, the midwife of, of the Information Society album. But we always kind of suspected that it was one of those stories that they tell at record companies that's not only embellished, but kind of ridiculously made up. But 
lo and behold, 10 years later or more, maybe 12, there was um, a photography show going on here in San Francisco. There are all these different photographers showing their works and most of them had, you know, books being published of their photography. And I don't know how much you know about Leonard Nimoy, but one of the things he did in his late career was he got into photography. Yeah. So he was one of the people showing. Now I thought of that as the Leonard Nimoy photography event and we're going to go to it. And I thought, wow, maybe I can even, maybe I can even like say hi to him. And we got there and I got to the front window and I said, Hey, we're here for the Leonard Nimoy event. And the person said, that's not, we're doing a photography thing. And I said, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, fine. Go ahead. Go on in. And we got there pretty early. There weren't many people there yet. And Leonard Nimoy was sitting at a table by himself <laughs> with one assistant. There was nobody there to talk to him at all. So I just got to stand there and talk to Leonard Nimoy for half an hour. <laughs> and one of the things I asked him about was, hey, check with you and see if this actually happened. Because we've been told, you know, that blah, blah, blah. And he listened for all and he eventually went, oh, yes, I, I remember that. That was one of Adam's things. Yeah, yeah, yes, I, that, that's true. I, I did do that. I never heard the song, but is that right? He never realized it was a number. It, it reached the uh, top five, number three. I think was it peaked at. That wasn't his world. You know, he was an actor. singer Bilbo. He was. Bilbo. Yes. did you ever see his photography i think it was like large yeah. women i think was what he liked. yeah I, I bought the book uh he was so cool i mean he, he's kind of a role model for me uh for a bunch of reasons and one of them is that if he wanted to do something and it was going to ruffle feathers or break uh boundaries and paradigms he just went ahead and did it that book got him in huge trouble as as you may remember if you were into it at the time because he was photographing women in settings and clothings that are traditionally reserved for men within the traditional Jewish religion. And he got in huge trouble with that. A couple of philanthropic organizations kicked him out or at least, you know, stopped having him sponsor them or stuff like that. Um, and he just went ahead and did it anyway, because it's, it's the art that he wanted to make. I also loved how he, he several times he was able to reinvent himself from scratch. Yeah. And I told him that when I was talking to him and I remember he said, well, well, I have to, I, I find I, it's, it's just necessary in life. You have to, you can't avoid it. You have to reinvent yourself at least three or four times. It's, there's, there's no avoiding it. That was really good wisdom. 
to receive from someone that I, uh, I really benefited from hearing someone say that. Yeah. It sounds a lot like you. How so? Oh, yes. That I've had to reinvent myself. Yeah. yeah exactly. More times than I wanted to. That's for sure. So when you do go on a tour, is this like a, will you do a package tour? You know, like, is it all like eighties and nineties bands that they get together or is it, uh, how, how does information society tour? We've done a lot of shows, a lot of, a lot of other eighties acts recently. Um, we've played with flock of seagulls a bunch of times and you know, book of love. I think, was it men at work or men without hats? I don't remember. We did a few shows with the cutting crew and Wang Chung, but only parts of each of them. And they were playing together yeah. and they were, they were trying to come up with what would be the name for this combination <laughs> of Wang Chung and the cutting crew. And of course the one I wanted them to use was the Wang cutting <laughs> crew. But you know, as funny as that sounds, they didn't go for it. And um, I don't remember what they eventually settled on, but we did a few shows with them. A lot of other bands like that. But when we go to Brazil, it's pretty much just us. Yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. The, like these package tours, sometimes you, you get like, what, like three, four songs to play. Is that, is that usually how it works? That's more like a track show. Um, we don't do so many of those anymore. There've been okay. a few freestyle reunion events in, in New York city over the last 10 years or so, uh, where it's more like that. We do one or three songs, but for the most part, we're either doing full concerts when it's just us or when we do the, the package things, it's you know, between six and 10. You were on Tommy boy, which did you feel like you fit in? Or, no, we didn't fit in at all. Um, that was kind of the, our whole story. Was, is that why hey, you look at these guys. they don't fit in? How cool. That's it. You didn't want to be a part like, Oh, Queen Latifah, digital underground. Oh, we would. I mean, <laughs> it didn't matter whether we wanted to be, <laughs> there was no way we would have known how to fit in with that crowd. Was there a bidding war at all? Like back in the day, like, or was it just Tommy boy wanted to sign? Yeah, you no. That's it. We got one offer and we're going to take that. You. Yeah. 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 And then we just got lucky that Tommy boy uh, happened to become acquired by Warner brothers. So we ended up being a Warner brothers act because Tommy boy at the time realized that what their specialty was, was going to be dance singles and that pop music album that wasn't really contained within the freestyle genre was not something they knew how, how to handle. So they kept the part of the business that involved putting out the singles and they gave the album promotion to Warner brothers and they put it on their reprise label. Your screen says Kurt Larson, but mm -hmm. we have Kurt Harland. Which yeah, that's is my middle name. I was using my middle name for a long, long, long time as my last name. And then when I got married, my wife and I both changed to Larson. So I changed back and she changed to Larson. So we just wanted to change our names together. So we should call you Kurt Larson? I guess, if you want. Okay. Don't call you late for Wait. dinner. Yeah. Just don't call me Kurt Valaquin. I dropped that. Okay. That was something I came up with in high school and it's really embarrassing. It's a J.R.R. Tolkien thing. Well, All right, I'm going to go. Bye. Thank you so much, Kurt. Take care. Thanks, Kurt. Uh, okay. <laughs> So we got a little bit about uh, the music industry, a little bit about the video game industry. We heard all about it from Kurt Larson. And a little bit about Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> Leonard Nimoy as well. Who doesn't want to hear a good Leonard Nimoy story? So thanks to Ray Rolden of Ray B Publicity for hooking us up. And uh, thank you to Kurt Larson from Information Society. The album is called Odd Fellows and it is out now. Of course, uh, please check us out on social media and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You're going to find some stuff on there that you may not hear in the podcast. So on YouTube, we are What Difference Does It Make podcast and just uh, subscribe and enjoy. Very good. I will do just that. What Difference Does It Make is a proud member of the Pantheon podcast family. Until next time, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 